The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, July 24th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Trump acolytes have taken to the airwaves to argue that the attention paid to Russia, the infighting and the attorney general regret, some Napoleonic misinterpretation and the like, has all been an example of media misdeeds talking about those things. What we've been doing is we've been distracting from what should have been the real discussion. Here's Fox News contributor Eric Bowling on This Week with George Stephanopoulos making his case. He moves forward. He moves the media. He moves the, the story forward. He stays in the news. I will tell you unequivocally, I spoke to him yesterday. He's very frustrated about Russia being the focus of everyone's conversations right. when, uh, when it, he, he would like to focus on other things. He'd like to talk about other things. But it, it doesn't, the media never gets there. They sit, he sits down with the New York Times. What happens? They talk about Russia. Now, here's the problem. Not even getting into the fact that the Russia story really is a story. Bowling there is engaged in a discussion about what the media should be discussing. He says it shouldn't be discussing what they have been discussing. But here is my advice. The president has a tool in his arsenal that could prompt the media to start talking about something else. And that tool is for him to start doing. Now, all the media can do is discuss. It's wrapped up in the definition of the name. But Trump who is a creation, an exemplar, and a student of the media, thinks that this is all he can do too. It's not true. He can do things, and once he does things, the media will cover those things. But since Trump has no healthcare law, no infrastructure plan, no fleshed-out tax reform, that's all he can do. Kellyanne Conway had at it. She was on Reliable Sources. First voice you'll hear is Brian Stelter. I think people can care about multiple issues at the same right, time. Right, so why aren't you Certainly, covering them? Why are most of your lower thirds... care about a lot of issues. Of course. Uh, yeah. That's that's America and that's Donald Trump. He ran on a lot of issues. He's making good on those promises with or without the help of, of a number of cable stations. But let's be honest here. Stock market up 25 record highs. Fact. Eight, over 800,000 jobs created. Fact. Healthcare reform on its way and tax reform right after that. Fact. Fact. But alternative facts. Let me just repeat. For the- let's start from the back and move forward. Tax reform, that's not a fact. It's an idea to have an idea one day. Healthcare reform on its way, not a fact. CNN has talked a lot about healthcare reform not being a fact. A lot of coverage, but the coverage is this isn't going to be a fact. So you can't really cover it as a fact if it's not a fact. 800,000 jobs created and stock market up. Both true, both of questionable credit to the president. What, CNN should air report after report about how the S&P is up 8% since he was inaugurated? It doesn't sound like great coverage for CNN to me. What would a report look like if they were talking all about the 800,000 jobs created? Might they say, in June, President Trump created 222,000 jobs, preliminary figures. They might say that, and that might sound good to Trump. But they might also say, of the last four years, that was the third most jobs created in the month of June. Maybe they would say, in May, he created 152,000 jobs. And they might say, out of the last four years, that was the third highest number of jobs created. This is his pattern. Actions speak louder than words, but with no successful actions to speak of, Team Trump is reduced to words. I guess they figure no one can speak more forcefully than Kellyanne Conway, so they're happy to have this fight. Even if it's a fight they can't win, they can at least engage in it ad nauseum. On the show today, I spiel about an exhuming, an examination of an exhuming. 
But first, he was a member of the Kids in the Hall, and he has a podcast called Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show. Ladies and gentlemen, Luciano Casimiri. No, wait, wait, wait. I got that wrong. It's Kevin McDonald. My next guest needs no introduction, yet I will still give him one, as is the Thank conventions you. of a podcast. Kevin McDonald was one of the kids in the hall. Now he's a man who was a kid in the hall. He was a man, oh, wow. man. Yeah. yeah, I'm a man. He's a man. He's I'm a still man a kid in the hall. We haven't split up. Uh, we, we will only split up when one of us starts uh, dying, probably day fully. But only when they start dying. What if it's a long and painful process? We are very healthy. Uh, you could, well, you could squeeze a couple shows out of him, maybe, yeah, that, when he's on his deathbed. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Uh, yeah, we'll do three or four with Dave after. He's so healthy, we can do three <laughs> or four with Dave after he's dead. That's what he brings to the table. Yes. So I know kids in the hall were named after that uh, Jack Benny phrase. that. He yes, well, writers. actually, uh, I'll be quick. I, I'll stop interrupting you. But uh, Dave Foley once said Jack Benny, uh, and so that's been the myth. But it's actually Sid Caesar had the kids in the hall, where he had his writer uh, stable of writers, and young guys would uh, pace the hall and try to sell jokes and uh, sketches, and the ones who sold the most uh, got hired. And the three famous ones are Neil Simon, Woody Allen, and Larry Gelbart. Yes, and I do have to say that now it makes sense for a couple of reasons. You're a sketch show, and I would I wondered would they even know Jack Benny? Jack Benny seems like kind of an American, like a specifically American yes. guy who doesn't transcend. And also, you were born in the early '60s. Was Jack Benny yes. popular then? Was he on TV? Well, so uh, Sid Caesar would make sense. Yes, uh, except we knew Jack Benny. We knew Dave Foley and I knew everything. We were yeah. uh, com- we could teach comedy. We knew Jack Benny. We loved him. He probably did have kids in the hall too, like selling jokes at least. Right. You guys, you and Dave were the Toronto guys. Yes, uh, Dave and I were the Toronto guys, uh, and there were more Toronto guys, but they qu- ended up quitting. And the Calgary guys were uh, Bruce McCullough and Mark McKinney, um, and they had a lot of guys, and they eventually quit. So there was four losers who couldn't get jobs like on local TV shows. And then Scott Thompson happened to be a local Toronto guy who forced his way, and he just kept coming on stage, and we couldn't uh, stop him. Did the Calgary guys have culture shock? I don't know much about Canada, but mm-hmm. Calgary's out there, and yes. they're a cowboy town. It's an artsy thing, and it's also a cowboy town. It's got the famous uh, rodeo. Yeah. And uh, in the early 80s, there was the great Calgary exodus of uh, comedians and musicians and actors and writers. Uh, I'm motioning with my hand uh, from West Canada to East Canada. (laughs) I'm sorry you're missing it. Um, And they were part of that exodus. Did the Toronto guys? Did the Toronto guys have to orient and hold the hand of the more provincial Calgary guys in any way? No, because uh, Mark, he was in school. He became a Calgary guy, but he was the son of a Canadian diplomat uh, who was the ambassador to the states at one point in Mexico, Jamaica. He's the most sophisticated kid. In the hall. He's so sophisticated. Lauren Michaels will only talk to him when he has news for the troop. <laughs> uh, Mark, can you come into my office? The others, you stay outside. Thank you very much. And then we see, like, we see them through the window talk. Um, was it weird then that uh, Lauren's contracts always were half the proceeds would go to him and the rest you guys had to share? It made sense to us. Yeah. It made sense to us. Honey, please. But you're not. Oh, come on. Jeez. Politeness is for strangers on a train. Oh, that's true. Not for old friends. No, God, how long have we known you guys anyways? Oh, oh gosh. Um, it must be, uh... Nine years. Jeez. If you include the year and a half that Tom spent in the coma. Oh, <laughs> The salad years, huh? Yeah. yeah. So when you played drag, when you played a woman, yes, did you have a kid who you most enjoyed being married to as the man? Who did you couple best with? Well, Dave was so beautiful. Yeah. I remember the first time Dave dressed as a woman. Um, 
I was I caught myself staring at him uh, in the because we shared a dressing room. And I was just staring at him, and he, he turned around and said, what are you doing? No, nothing. I'm going over my lines. No, you were staring at me. <laughs> Once uh, somebody um, in the crew, because in our first season, nobody knew who the, in the crew who the kids in the hall were. Like the, they, they didn't really know who was in the troupe. Um, and when the first days of filming, Dave dressed up as a hooker, and um, one of the guys in the crew asked him out for a date. And Dave, being a polite Canadian, said yes. Since you're a big fan of music, have you ever, I'm sure you've read about bands and their dynamics oh, yes. and, of course, your dynamics. Do you think there's any band whose internal dynamics were like the kids in the hall they know of? Yeah, uh, probably. Maybe Metallica. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> like I, I saw the documentary. And Some I, kind of monster, was that it? Yeah. yeah. And, and the only way, uh, yeah, exactly. And the only reason we got up better than Metallica is because they had those 10 years in a van where they just lived in a van and they couldn't afford a hotel room. So um, that everything is heightened. I guess the good things are heightened too, but the animosity you have between one person would be heightened. We, we're Metallica divided by 10 because yeah. we don't have those van years. We were just a comedy <laughs> trip. We didn't tour around in a van. But yeah, seeing them um, uh, like argue, and it's a totally different uh, set of circumstances. But when, uh, what's his name? The lead singer, James? James, Hat- James Hatfield. Hatfield yeah. Where he, he can't um, work at night because he's going through AA. None of us are going through that. Uh, so he insists they don't work at night. In a totally different situation, that's the exact same kind of dynamic. You can't do that. Uh, oh, but you can't do that. Yeah. Well, how can we do anything? Then? Yeah. And also a lot of bands have the power center, you know, the Glimmer Twins or, or Lennon McCartney. Yes. And then the ballast. Often the bass player, I find. Yes. But the guy who is so calm and then, you know, if you're a quintet like you guys were, was there that role? Wow, we don't really have the calm guy. Yeah. <laughs> the Glimmer Twins was probably Bruce McCullough himself. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, like the, the closest thing to the bass player would be Dave, I would say. Dave, Dave, Dave was the calmest. Yeah. Yes, Dave, Dave was, the, was, was sort of the calmest. I, I could almost be that, but, uh, but I do it with my nervous energy. Yes. So it's not like a bass player. It's more the, like a keyboard player. Though a lot of times, and I've read a bit about you, and I think most of you grew up with let's say, stern or abusive father figures. Yes, yes. A lot of times, those kind of people want to smooth the waters. Yes. They know how not to make waves. I am that too. Yeah. Like, we'd have an argument, and um, Mark and Bruce would be arguing about a scene, and go, oh, I think Mark has a good point. And then Bruce would talk, oh, the Bruce has a good point too. Bruce would say something like, um, how can you sit there with a fence so shut up the, your ass so high? And uh, which is... <laughs> So yeah, I'm totally like that. I'm the others aren't like that for some reason, but I'm more the classic uh, son of an alcoholic. Um, and are you the only? I haven't seen it, but I know you did a live show about the kids and yes. your dad. Yeah, Hammy and the kids. Hammy yes. and the kids. Hammy was your dad. Hammy, yes, 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 yes. Are you the only one who turned that so explicitly into art, if you will? Because I know it's there in a lot of the yes. sketches. A drunk dad or an abusive dad or an angry dad. Yes. Yeah. Bruce also did too. Uh, he, he wrote that scene where uh, we all fantasize about beating up our dads. Yes. For sure, it would be me in first place for doing drunk dad things and Bruce in second. Mark's dad just ignored him. He was the, the, the sophisticated uh, high-class diplomat guy. Right. Thus allowing him to flourish and talk yeah. to Lauren Michaels. <laughs> exactly. He had a plan. <laughs> Mark, can you uh, ignore the others and come in to talk to me first? And once, uh, I remember we were rehearsing. We were waiting to get into a rehearsal room, and we were uh, all talking about horrible dad stories. And I would tell my horrible dad story that's in Hammy and the Kids, um, uh, where I came from school. I wasn't that popular with girls, and my dad would say... Uh, uh, how many? He was drunk. He wasn't at work. He was home drunk. How many girls called you take? Evan, zero. Right, right. How many called you yesterday? Zero. Yeah. 
You know what zero times zero equals, don't you? Zero times zero always equals fag, my gay little mathematician. <laughs> and Scott had a horrible story about his dad driving, um, uh, drunkly driving up the hedge, like running over his hedge, trying to run him over. Yeah. And uh, Dave had a horrible story. Everyone had horrible stories. Then it was Mark's turn. And he said, once um, when I was in Jamaica, uh, I saw my father fire my nanny in front of me. <laughs> Fodder. <laughs> and that's sad. Yeah. Like, like it's a different like level, but that's sad. But all I'm saying is you should have opened the stories. You don't, <laughs> yeah. you don't headline with that. <laughs> hey, any of you guys ever beat up your dad? What? What, what are you talking about? Ever beat up your dad? No. no. Never? No. No, no, I never Not beat up Not once? No. no. Well, surely you've thought about it, though. Well, yeah. yeah? I, I, thought, I thought so. Okay. Well, maybe. I've yeah. About. If you were going to do it, right? Do you think you could take him? Could you take your old man? I don't know. Think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I could take him. I guess I could beat up my own father. <laughs> of course, he's 70. <laughs> I'd let him beat me up. What? 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 Oh, then I'd let his guilt tear him apart. I don't uh, think so. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, I that counts. Know. No, passive aggressive. That counts. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, we can be bastards, too. Oh, yes, sir. So did you think, I used to think that comedy was forged of strife. But now there are so many people younger than me who just have these great, idyllic-seeming suburban childhoods right. where their parents convinced them, you should be on Saturday Night Live, and they were so nurtured, and they're really funny. Yeah. This is like upending all my expectations about what, what creates a funny person. Yeah, and, and I hope that's true. That's healthy. And I, I know nothing about Stephen Wright, but he doesn't seem to have any demons, but yeah. I know nothing about his childhood. Uh, I know nothing. I always wondered if Steve Martin, he probably has more demons than I think he does, but he doesn't. Uh, they don't really come across um, in his comedy uh, so much. But uh, we bought that, that the, the demons uh, sort of drive us. Uh, who's my favorite Beatle? John Lennon, the, the, the one with the demons. Uh, George Harrison probably had a couple demons. Paul McCartney seems demonless. Yeah. Yet he's still good. Yeah. <laughs> he's still good. It, it, we you've, also la- you've also named the still alive one. Yeah. So maybe that correlates somehow. Yeah. Well, uh, it wasn't Lennon's fault, I know. But yeah. Well, uh, it was the old, uh, maybe he got rid of his demons and he got killed. Like Sam Kennison. Well, that's the that's the myth, right? That he uh, stopped drinking, he'd got his life back together. He he was w- with a woman in a normal relationship, and then he got like in a car accident. But that seems to, that seems more like the story we tell ourselves, like the story that the person who's yeah. still uh, beholden to drinking and drugs tells yes. themselves. That's why I use the word myth. Yes, yes. <laughs> but yes. that's the comedy myth. The, or like uh, the fat guy who doesn't want to lose weight because then I'll be less funny, and then they do, yeah. and it's like, oh yeah, I'm still funny, just skinnier. Yes, well, that's happened to me. I lost weight and. I was the uh, the overweight kid in the hall, mm-hmm. uh, but I don't know why I'm getting to that story. When? Uh, I don't remember that. Before the TV show. Uh, um, in 1987, when Lauren Michaels brought us to New York to write the pilot, that's when I lost the weight. New York. I lost the weight in New York. <laughs> did Lauren, the whole company, did they treat you well? I mean, I maybe wouldn't have known them, known you without them, but right. were you remunerated for your well, labor? They treated us well and that they took us out of nowhere. Lauren's always been great to us. Um, our lawyer did tell us we were signing the worst uh, contract in showbiz history, <laughs> but we were really nothing, right? Like only Lauren Michaels was the only guy that thought we were good, and um, we, we didn't care. Uh, when he brought us to uh, the Brill Building where uh, his office used to be when he wasn't at Saturday Night Live, it was like a clo- it was a big closet. 
uh, where we worked, but he, we were, he, he was also being audited. So we were uh, sharing the space with two auditors. And um, this was before like computers were getting, they had their counting machines and their abacus. <laughs> and uh, every now and then when we said something funny, you could hear the two uh, auditors giggle. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's good audit humor. <laughs> yeah. Audit, yeah, that's good. <laughs> More numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All the sketches were about ca- carryover interest that year. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but they treated us well. Uh, yeah. But can you live off kids' money? No. I, see, I have no concept of actually how well, popular you were. What that's you not tell the, me? Okay, well, let's go back. I, my first thought was, no, you can't. But then the, the residuals, uh, when, we, uh, when we're getting on CISO uh, now and uh, before we were on Netflix, the resi- like every two years we do get a good residual check. And I guess it's the um, I guess it's my biggest residual check. So why am I complaining? I'm not. Com- I'm Lauren. I'm not complaining. <laughs> you t- took us from nothing, and the residual checks are amazing. I'm not complaining. <laughs> and as Americans, you're taxed less than the Canadians. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm a dual citizen. I I accidentally made the right amount of money where I'm being taxed by both countries. Uh, it's a crazy rule they have. How popular were you? I thought I oh. thought you were everything. I mean, but I was a comedy nerd. Right. Right. Uh, well, Do you have any way of putting it in perspective? Yes, we're a big cult. Yeah. I copy Scott Thompson's theory, mm-hmm. his lemonade theory of comedy. And I think it totally applies. 80% of the people of the world love lemonade that is sweet and sugared. That's Saturday Night Live. And they all like it. Um, but it's a lot of people. Uh, 20% of the people like lemonade with no sugar that's just sour. Only 20%, but the people who like it love it! Yeah. And that's sort of the kids in the hall. Uh, we're 20% sour lemonade. Uh, we're only 20 We only get the 20%, but they love it! <laughs> yeah, you're the right... Ramones, the Ramones, Pixies. You're the, but there is a sweetness to the kids, so maybe it's more like a, a, a rye bread. All right, rye bread's good. Yeah, yeah we're yeah. like rye... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Do you think the kids would have thrived in this diffuse, multi-channel world? Wow, or good question. would have you maybe become more niche? It's easy to be uh, be nichier here now. Mm-hmm. It, it, we've sort of created a thing where more and more people can be successful, but more and more people are successful in a niche way. So maybe, and when I think about sketch- and also your niche per se yes. was still a pretty successful niche for the time. HBO yeah. network shows. So that niche then the 1995 niche uh, by orders of magnitude bigger than the 2016 niche. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. When you put it that way, you're smart. Uh, that's good. <laughs> And I always wonder about sketch comedy troops. Uh, now the difference, we had nowhere to, f- we couldn't film us and put us up on anything. We just had to be a stage troupe. As a result, when we did get a TV show, which is much harder because of that, we had our acting chops. I think nowadays people start filming things right away. And if they get a TV show, maybe they don't necessarily have their, um, though that's not true, like Broad City. Because like, a lot of people are improvisers who do that. But I wonder, like, we were like, uh, as close as you can get to Metallica in a van for a comedy yeah. troupe. For like five, six years before we, uh, before Lauren finally got a start. To, I'm not complaining, Lauren. Before <laughs> Lauren got a start, like our TV show. Kevin McDonald, a kid in the hall, his new podcast, and I'm glad you got this gig because I, when I now, na- when I heard that they had announced something called Kevin McDonald's Kevin McDonald Show, <laughs> I said I know who'd be hi- who'd be perfect for it, and it was you. It was Kevin McDonald. See, it is a good title. He's also out with with apparently a scathing anti Lauren Michaels memoir. I don't know where this. No, is. <laughs> it's called I'm not complaining, Lauren. <laughs> I'm not complaining, Lauren. Read between the lines as a Canadian excoriates. Between the lines, it also says I'm not complaining, Lauren. Kevin McDonald, the pleasure. Uh, Thank you. Thank you.
And now the spiel. I think it will take only a few more days to get to the bottom of a great international mystery. Trump, Kushner, Russia. No, no, no. This one. And a story out of Spain has a lot of people talking. A judge has ordered the body of artist Salvador Dali to be exhumed. They exhumed Salvador Dali. Here's a description of the process. Technicians started by removing a heavy stone slab that gave access to the crypt with Dali's tomb. They were to extract four teeth, nails, and the marrow of a long bone. A small committee of five people oversaw the opening of the coffin. The process took one hour and 20 minutes, officials said. Of course, it's hard to keep time because, you know, the clocks kept melting. What they found inside just might shock you. Well, it's Salvador Dali, a man who once gave a lecture wearing a deep-sea diving suit and a helmet. He was carrying a billiard cue and leading a pair of Russian wolfhounds at the time, and the helmet had to be unscrewed because he couldn't breathe. So... I'm going to say maybe it won't really shock you, shock you, but it was a little bit surprising. Salvador Dali's mustache, his famous mustache, was still intact. Salvador Dali once issued a book which consisted entirely of uses of his mustache, like poking through some Gruyere cheese. Dali's mustache dipped in honey, attracting a fly. And now we have a posthumous Dali mustache, which has endured 30 years after the last breath was drawn from the lips upon which it gained purchase. I'm going to weigh in and say this exhumation seems ill-advised. The woman who is claiming to be Dolly's illegitimate daughter has a brother who is not Dolly's son. So someone said, why don't you just test the living brother? And if he's a full sibling of the woman, then Dolly's not the father. Now we should say, if the woman is proved to be Dolly's daughter, she will be entitled to a quarter of the Dolly estate most of which has already been bequeathed to Spain and a foundation bearing his name. So who does that help? This woman, 61-year-old from Spain, is a tarot card reader on local TV and a fortune teller. So if she's wrong, not only will she miss out on the Dolly payday, I can see her Yelp rating suffering quite a bit. But I think the biggest insult to Salvador Dali isn't that he has been disinterred. That doesn't seem to be an affront to a man obsessed with wretched decay of the corporeal form. I think the insult is the lazy use of the word surrealism in describing this story. I could scarcely find mention of this without some clever headline writer noting that it was quite a surreal turn of events. When surrealism becomes truism, it is an insult beyond the normal degradation of a once vibrant word that slips into cliché. Once surreal, now jejun. Beyond this story, the word surreal seems to have become a crutch for any event that's hard to describe. In fact, I was looking up uses of the word surrealism, and it's often juxtaposed next to that very phrase, hard to describe. I don't know, it was hard to describe. It was kind of surreal. Sometimes surreal is used to describe accidents that are unexpected. And nothing looked too out of the ordinary. You didn't really pay much attention. And then all of a sudden, it was skidding across the runway on its belly. There was black clouds of smoke. Um... Uh, And what about the people around you? I mean, was there lots of confusion? Were other people doing the same? What was the what was the scene like then? Um, It was actually it was a bit surreal. Sometimes it's used to describe events that are discordant, like a teacher from rural Canada winning an international prize given to her in outer space. McDonnell says it was surreal when her name was announced from the space station. Maggie McDonald. She even took a few of her students along for the ride. It's not that these people are using surrealism wrong. Surrealism isn't any one thing. It means something close to dreamlike, and there's no one thing that a dream is like. Surrealism is actually this really useful word 
that's there for you when you're struggling for a description of the inexplicable because it means having the qualities of the inexplicable. That said, an attempt to cash in on the fortune of a man you've never met, that is far from inexplicable. So too, it turns out, is the intact facial hair on a body after it's dyed. Facial hair contains keratin, which resists decomposition, sometimes for centuries. The persistence of mustaches. That's it for today's show that just was produced by Mary Wilson, who, like Salvador Dali, lives on in spirit as she vacations. Unlike Salvador Dali, her mustache does not live on. Chris Berube, producer of The Gist, has improved upon Dolly's famous sculpture of a lobster as a telephone. He's created a newer, smaller, pocket-sized crayfish as cell phone, and you don't have to buy a protective case. It has its own shell. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts. He's down with the diver suit. He's down with the wolfhounds. But the billiard cue? How about a polo mallet made of meringue? Now that's surreal. The Gist, a prominent television tarot card reader, also claimed to be my offspring, but a DNA test with Miss Cleo proved nothing. Oomperu deperu duperu, and thanks for listening.